Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you today, Dr. Starlin? I am doing well, Sarah. Thanks for asking. How are you? Not too bad, getting over this sickness that I had, so I'm finally starting to feel better. That's good to hear. I'm sorry that you were ill. Yeah, it happens, especially when you have kids, but... Yep, they go to they go to daycare or school and bring things home. They sure do. Well, I'm super excited for our guest today. Um, would you like to introduce him, or would you like me to? I can go ahead and talk about uh, our guest today for a minute, if that's all right with you. So I'm happy to have Doctor Doctor Richard Hankins with us today. He is. Um, you're not the newest member of infectious disease, but you're. Uh, no, think, I'm no longer the newest member, so I've escaped that title. There you go. It's a, it's a, it's fun to to move on from that title <laughs> to be the the low man on the totem pole, so to speak. But Richard is an assistant professor with us here in the Division of Infectious Disease at UNMC. He's an IP infection prevention medical director here at Nebraska Medicine. He's also very involved in our ICAP program, doing a lot of stuff with Sarah, actually, uh, in the dentistry world. I'm interested to hear what he had to learn about that, because most of us physicians, we look in the mouth and we say, ah, looks okay. Um, So... um, (laughs) Uh, how how that's gone for him, amongst uh, many other things that he's done since he's started here. Uh, he actually did his fellowship here as well. So one of the questions I'll have for him is, is what about the transition going from being a fellow and, and everything else to being a, a staff faculty member at the same place that you trained and how that adjustment has gone for him. But welcome, Richard. Glad, glad to have you. I'm glad to be here. Glad that y'all invited me to, to come on. So looking forward to it. It'll be fun. So um, usually our first question for our guests is kind of what was your um, what was your journey to get into medicine and specifically into being an ID physician? Um, well, I, I originally grew up thinking I wasn't going to medicine. Both, both my folks were physicians and they kept on trying to get me to like medicine. I never did. Um, and so I always had this idea that I was going to be uh, a lawyer and my brother-in-law's a lawyer. And I remember in college, I was, uh, I'm a classics and biochemistry double major. And I visited my brother-in-law and he was said, oh, I can't do anything this weekend. I have to read. And he showed me 300 pages of uh, just monotonous reading he had to do for work. And I thought, well, I don't want to do that. I, I thought law was law and order. That looks terrible. I'm not doing that. Um, and so I volunteered in an ER and I thought that was great. There was no reading. It was just like helping people. Um, And so that kind of progressed me to going to medical school. Um, I liked internal medicine because of the uh, analytic nature of it, trying to investigate things. Um, And as I was doing internal medicine, I I had really didn't think about doing ID. Um, 
there was a patient that I took care of at the VA in my res in my residency that really kind of sparked my interest in ID. And it was a, a guy that came in on like a Friday afternoon. He was uh, incredibly ill, went to the intensive care unit, respiratory failure, renal failure. Uh, and they started broad spectrum antibiotics on him, drew blood cultures. And the next morning he was fine. He was like sitting up in bed, eating breakfast, um, tubes out, renal failure was, was improving. Um, and so they tried to send him home or he wanted to go home. They wanted to keep him here. And so that's where I got involved in this case. Cause I was one of the inpatient services. And so we moved him out of the ICU and he kept on asking to go home. We're trying to figure out what caused this, uh, his illness. And he looked fine, except he had some cuts on his hands. He said he broke up a dog fight about two weeks ago. And so I thought that was super interesting because he looked at his hands and it looks, looked really well healed. Like he could barely notice anything there. And so held him for the Saturday night and Sunday morning. He's like, I'm leaving. I'm going, I'm out. And so we said, all right, take this augmented. I have no idea what caused you to be so ill, but you're better. So that's great. And so he left and about an hour after he left, I started getting phone calls from the microbiology lab that all of his blood cultures were going positive one after another. Um, and I went to the microbiology lab and they're like, we have no idea what it is yet, but it's positive. We're trying to like see what it looks like underneath the microscope. And so I called the guy to come back and he refused. Um, and I was just like hoping the augmented worked, but every day for the next week, I kept on going to the microbiology lab being like, all right, what does it look like? Let's look at this underneath the microscope. What do we think's growing? Um, and it turned out being catenocytophaga, which makes a lot of sense from the dog bites. But I just remember that uh, investigation of trying to figure out what was going on, his, his history with the dog fight, going to the microbiology lab and continually looking at what was growing underneath the microscope, I thought was incredibly interesting. And beyond that, just how quickly he went from ICU to able to go home within like 24 hours. Um, so the power of antibiotics really uh, became impressed on me fairly early. That's pretty awesome, Richard. I, I guess I have two questions for you from that story. Is First off, yeah. is, did he have a spleen? I, gosh, I forget. Yeah. I, I really don't know. Yeah, that's all right. And second of all, I assume that you have read something about medicine, even though you didn't have to read anything on your ED rotation. I'm not sure what that says about medicine or infect or emergency department or. Well, okay. So there's, <laughs> there's reading, but the like the constant reading, uh, like you can read in school, but it's the reading after school. It's the, um, like once, once you're practicing, I don't, I don't want to read like 300 pages every weekend. Like that seems excessive. And, and so legislative or like the laws and statutes and stuff is not a fun read. It's not interesting at all. All right. I just didn't want it to get out. The doctors <laughs> didn't read because of no, that would... we, we read, but we, <laughs> we don't read, we don't read like I read like this. Uh, I, I assume there are some people that probably assume we never read anything on a weekend. Nor do I want to like have to like type up motions constantly and pay lots of paperwork. I want to like want to avoid excessive paperwork, which I don't. I still don't think we even do that as physicians. I feel like I 
I <laughs> happened into this and now it's like, oh, I didn't really think, like when I went to medical school, did I really think that we were gonna be doing this much typing um, and note writing? So, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, in a way, you're, you're writing like you're going to be in court, right? Always type up your notes like it could be so, in court. So true. So true. <laughs> yeah, like when we see a patient and you spend, spend maybe like an hour, hour and a half, like with for a total patient encounter, but the amount of time you actually spend with the patient is about 15 minutes, but then you spend about the rest of that hour writing the note. And it's just like, didn't really anticipate that in medical school, but that's where, that's where I am now. <laughs> Well, don't forget that you have to figure out how exactly to put in the correct order and to have it entered so that somebody else somewhere can see it and it actually happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Rick, I have to call you for you to explain to me about how I actually put in like the telehealth coding. <laughs> hey, I'm here for you, Richard. I'm here for you. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and now everything's done digitally, right? So we don't have to worry about those, uh, the terrible handwriting. True. No more terrible handwriting, which I feel like I only caught like, a like right as I was starting, I still saw some handwritten notes some places and had to practice some handwritten notes. But I think uh, by the time I finished medical school, everything, everything that I'm around is now electronic. I can tell you it was easier for the providers when it was handwritten because you just wrote stuff and somehow somebody else had to figure out how to make it happen. Now that it's electronic, I mean, you could put in for in, into the, the EMR system for a CT scan of something and you'll have a list of like 50 of them you have to pick from. And so how do you mm -hmm. know which one of them is going to go is the one you want to order and send it to the right place? It, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, so Rick, did you ever have problems when you were the provider handwriting notes, but then you wanted to see like, gosh, I wonder what the, the internist on this case is thinking. And then you look at their handwritten note and you're like, well, I can't read that. Well, my handwriting was amongst the worst. So I was able to figure <laughs> out most of it. Um, and, you know, it kind of gets back to the old joke about where do you hide things from certain providers, right? So infectious disease, we're going to look in the chart. You know, where do you hide things from an internist? You hide them underneath a, a wound dressing. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, so, uh, you know, it's kind of that kind of thing. So um, I would look through the chart and I could figure it out. So uh, the question I asked in the introduction, I just want to, I was just curious because you, you know, you, you've been here for a while now and you've kind of mm -hmm. gone through different transitions uh, um, through training and, and everything else. And so you were, you know, everybody's fellow for a couple of years and worked with all the providers and everything else. And now you're a peer. So just curious how that, that has gone for you and how you've had to change your mindset as, as you've transitioned into different roles. Um, how have I changed? Oh, so it went really easily for me. I'd say, um, I, I th think the people ask me this, like, what do you like best about the department? It's really the people. I love the people here. I kept on, kept on thinking for a while, like after I finished medical school, like, oh, I should move on to somewhere else, see like a really big city. And I was like, gosh, I really like, I just like the people here. And so I stayed for, um, for residency. I thought, oh, after residency, I'll go off and see something like fellowship somewhere else. And then it's just like, gosh, I really like the people in the ID department. And so it's just me constantly staying because I just love the people. Um, and then the transition from fellow to faculty, uh, everyone was 
so helpful and made things really easy. Um, <clears throat> I remember I, they set me up so that I was the inpatient, uh, attending on gen ID, like the second week of July, right after I finished fellowship. Um, and I had lots of questions that, <laughs> you, you know, and, and, um, one of the things I still have problems with is calling people by certain names. So I was going to say Dr. Marcellin, but Jasmine Marcellin kind of told me something that I find so true that when you're a fellow, it's very easy to see something and make a decision because you have the person like standing right behind you. That's like, good idea. You're right. And just like pat you on the back a little bit, just that little reassurance. And so when you move on to being a faculty and that slight like reassurance is gone, the easy decisions become way more difficult because you don't have that same like slight bit of oversight with something someone just saying yeah good job uh so i thought that was really difficult uh but it was so easy when whenever i had questions just calling people and so i feel like that first week i was talking to every person in the department just asking like hey i just want to make sure what do you think about this what do you think about that yeah, I think that's pretty normal. Uh, I remember those days. You lose a little more sleep when you, you know, become moved from fellow to staff and you realize that the buck stops with your decision and you're so wondering, did, did I make the right decision there or not? So uh, I, I, I vaguely remember that. It was a couple Lots years of Lots of PubMed searches. I got really good at that that first week. Yeah. Agreed. And then you always find yourself, at least I find myself going back as, you know, I'm like, okay, did I get the whole story here? You know, cause you never really know that you get, get everything. So, you know, frantically before rounds or whatever, I'm usually like looking through and trying to get as much information as I can so that when the case is presented to me, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I would notice on, uh, so when we're getting the new consults, I would constantly try to look them up myself instead of learning the case for the first time at the presentation because, I mean, it's July and so some of the people giving presentations, it's very new for them too. And so <laughs> makes it makes it more difficult on everyone. Yeah. And I think having a little knowledge helps you kind of direct, especially if you have somebody oh, yeah. that is new to, you can help kind of guide through the process a little bit of learning because they have to learn what you want to hear as well as you need to hear what you need to hear. True. So true. Everyone's been the new kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially so in July academic medical centers. <laughs> So talking about reading, I know you said, you know, you didn't want to read all that legal garbage, but um, you were recently reading a really cool book about the history of epidemiology. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'll say I recently was reading that. I, uh, I don't know if I've read any of it in a few months. So it is the single book on my nightstand that I'm reading for fun but reading for fun has gotten more difficult recently. So it is a fascinating book though. And I think it's one of the things that I like about infectious disease, um, looking at the history of infectious disease, looking at how uh, 
infectious disease has affected society, affected things that we did. And so some of the topics that that book covered was um, how infectious disease affected the Haitian Revolution, um, how infectious disease affected uh, Napoleon's attempt to conquer uh, Russia, um, and how, how it changed uh, human events in uh, pretty drastic ways. I just think that's really cool. Like that's not something that we often think about in today's mm -hmm. culture, right? We get sick and we go to the doctor, but it wasn't like something that is a, a life-changing event like that on that scale. So I guess <clears throat> aside from the pandemic that we're in right now. But. I know, I know. Now that, you, and so the interesting thing is this book was written like pre-pandemic. And so I feel like post-pandemic, it's like, oh my gosh, this is like, a completely new chapter um and who like i feel like people think about pandemics and uh people relate like gosh i was and i remember having a conversation with someone about this in february of 2020 saying like i'm kind of concerned about this and they're like no like pandemics like no big deal. We had Zika and Ebola and SARS, and I'm like, ah, eh, this is not like that. This seems more like 1919. Um, the like potential for what was coming, and so um, it's interesting looking at things and being able to say like, ah, oh, there's pandemics and there's pandemics. For sure. I recently listened to a podcast called Hidden Brain, which is a super cool podcast if you want to check it out. But they. Um, interviewed a historian on the comparisons of the COVID pandemic and the Spanish flu pandemic from 1918 and how much it mm -hmm. impacted like culture and society at that time. Uh, some of the very first blues songs from the early 1900s are written about the pandemic, the Spanish flu yeah. and people getting sick and dying. Yes. So kind of cool. Very unfortunate, but also very interesting. I feel right. like that's always the, when I'm reading about <clears throat> infectious disease pandemics, it's always the, like, oh, that's very unfortunate, but also very interesting. Yeah, one of the books that I read that influenced me going to infectious disease was The Hot Zone. It was a 1994 book. I don't know if either of you have had the chance to check that one out yet, but. So Angela Hewlett gave me that book and I haven't read it yet. This is, this is like, I have so much like for fun reading that I'm supposed to do um, that I haven't got to yet. So, and it's exacerbated by like my, my dad gives me books for like every Christmas. And it's just like, at some point in time, you just need to stop because the stack, it just gets they look, they look good on your shelf behind you though, Richard. <laughs> 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 I think that that's all that's all medicine stuff. I uh, know some of that's some of that's the faux fun reading stuff. Never mind. <laughs> You're right. Hey, so one other thing that you do is you um, you obviously do infection prevention and do a fair amount of that. You you jumped into that right before the pandemic started as well, which I'm sure was uh, an interesting introduction rather than learning <laughs> about uh, high level disinfection and and other stuff you get to do a bunch of planning and protocols for something that we know nothing about. That was very interesting. It went from, uh, we were meeting, I mean, we meet every Tuesday for about an hour 
And so that's normal infection control. And then come COVID, we were meeting daily for like an hour to two hours. That's a big jump. Yeah, it was like, yeah, big jump and lots of lots of protocol writing, lots of questions. It was, uh, and I say that, that those were like the meetings, but then we have just uh, email chains about questions from the uh, entire hospital. Um, I think the, one of the other things that was very interesting was just every specialty had certain concerns. And so we were creating protocols for basically every subspecialty, anesthesia, surgery, OB-GYN, um, the dental school, the dental school. Yeah. So every, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You can tell us a little bit about your dental experience since you became kind of the infection prevention expert for dentistry for the state? Uh, well, my, uh, my foray into dentistry started with uh, Dr. Rupp asking, um, I want to say May uh, 2020, he said, who doesn't have something like, is anyone busy uh, next week for like a few hours? And I was like, well, I'm free. And he's like, all right, you, all right, you can, you can go do this. And so that was the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Never raised that hand, right? <laughs> you were voluntold. So, yeah, so, uh, we first started out trying to help the dental, the uh, Nebraska College of Dentistry in Lincoln, um, which I, we, we went down there and it's very interesting because uh, they just have a very different setup than anything you would see in a regular dental clinic. It was huge open bays where they would do um, aerosol generating procedures just right next to each other. And so um, we went down there just focusing on COVID and how can we try to do some mitigation strategies, reducing aerosol generating procedures, increasing um, air exchanges, which was something that they hadn't really looked at at all. Um, and so that was kind of how I first uh, um, got involved in this. And then when ICAP wanted to reach out in dentistry and uh, Sarah joined ICAP, um, then since I had already started working with the College of Dentistry in Lincoln, I got slotted in to continue uh, doing dentistry work with Sarah. Um, and so I'd say that I, I'm learning a lot on the fly as I'm going through this. A lot of these uh, dentistry procedures, um, I was completely unfamiliar with. Um, and as you mentioned at the beginning, Rick, like, oh, that's a mouth. Okay. That was kind of how I was at the beginning, um, still to some degree, but trying to pick up more and more as I, I go along, trying to read the dental literature as much as I can, um, following CDC guidance on, on dentistry. Uh, and then trying to take what we know from infection control measures within the hospital and translating it somewhat into something that can be applied in a dental setting. Um, it's difficult because um, it doesn't really translate uh, seamlessly, but trying to do um, the best we can um, in the, the dental areas. It's been a lot of fun working through some of the projects we've gone. Mm -hmm. So what is the craziest thing you have ever seen in practice? Gosh, 
I don't know. I haven't really seen a lot. Um, I'd say recently I've been taking care of uh, someone who had uh, mucosal leishmaniasis, which I thought was uh, very unfortunate, but very interesting. Um, and so that, that was interesting. I've taken care of a few um, mucor patients, uh, patients with mucormycosis. Um, and I remember one patient I took care of with mucor. Um, and so it wasn't like you, you didn't see it. It was within like her sinuses and her, present, her uh, presenting symptom was the fact she just couldn't feel her face. And mucor had literally eroded through her facial nerve. So unfortunately interesting yeah i haven't I haven't seen anything like crazy i'd say maybe i'm just like i don't have as many years underneath my belt to have seen true craziness we'll make sure to get you rick, on service rick, rick what's the craziest thing you've seen we'll get you on service a little bit more here richard and then and, and we'll broaden your horizons a little bit oh i've seen all kinds of crazy things i mean here we had a guy that had uh Schetosporium uh, sinusitis and uh, is uh, uh, and, and it had actually eroded so that uh, on nasal endoscopy we could see his carotid sheath, which is pretty unusual and cool. Um, I had the, the story I told when we first were on was about a gentleman who had a um, came in with a fever and was paraplegic and came in with fever and we didn't know exactly why and we couldn't pass a Foley catheter to get any urine from him. Um, and so we eventually had to roll him over and actually the Foley catheter that was inserted through his urethra was visible out his backside because his, his uh, pressure ulcer had actually eroded all the way yeah. into his urethra. So we couldn't get it into his bladder. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of good, crazy things. I mean, you've become the, the parasite specialist here with us with your, your life case and, and, and other things, right? <laughs> um. I want to avoid any label of parasite specialist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think it might stick. It, it might stick. <laughs> you, you are still the, the new guy in general ID, I think. So you may not be the new guy overall, but I think in, in the general ID community ID realm, you are, that is you. Yeah. I, I have had a few, uh, um, I don't know if the term still is delusional parasitosis or uh, I'm trying to think. I think that they might have updated it in the most recent DSM. Um, I've seen a few of those. So I've uh, tried to work on my uh, discussion of, uh, of medically uh, unexplained symptoms. I'd look it up for you, but that sounds like that requires that reading. Requires reading. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You've got to do your hand hygiene first, right? <laughs> we, we joke that that's like anytime you get asked something and you don't know the answer to it, the first answer is always just do some hand hygiene because it's <laughs> never wrong. So if you, if you go over to for any NBU training or anything, if you can't mm -hmm. remember what the next step is, just do some hand hygiene because it'll buy you a little bit of time to figure out what's next. That's a good call. I, I, I like that. I don't think I've ever put so much alcohol on um, a pair of gloves ever as when I go over there. You know, one of the things I have noticed, so from the community work, um, last, last time I came off community, my hands 
uh, were not happy with me because of uh, alcohol-based hand gel. And I was, I was thinking, I started thinking like, if this is me after a week, uh, I felt bad. Like I was wondering, like, does Whitney have the same problem? See, like doing it every day because she's on every day for community. Um, quite possibly, yeah. quite possibly. We may need to uh, make sure we mix in a little bit of lotion. Do you, do you do that when you're on community? Do you? Like, oh, I better lotion my hands up because I'm starting to like crack. When I remember. Okay. <laughs> I'd say I don't. I don't take very good care of my hands. Maybe I should. I should. <laughs> should. It's only going to get worse. Yeah. I'm, yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and we're going into the colder months now. So that won't. I know. Oh, it's going to be bad. Yeah. Yeah, so you keep mentioning the community service. So you're, um, Richard is one of our key cogs in what we call community ID, doing uh, uh, healthcare with infectious disease outside of the major uh, academic medical center here at UNMC and, and going to a couple of places in town as well as doing some telehealth. Um, what's that experience been like trying to branch out a little bit from the academic medical center where you've been, spent most of your career up until now? Um. I'd say that it was fairly seamless. Um, going down to going to Bellevue and seeing all the patients at Bellevue, you see a lot of bread and butter, but you see some Ankh and some transplant. And having started that rise, I was coming out of fellowship, um, seeing Ankh, not as much transplant, I'd say, but seeing some Ankh wasn't um, that different from what I was already doing. And then a lot of the telehealth work, um, since I'm also one of the medical directors and stewardship, I feel like I'd already been doing a lot of the telehealth by trying to uh, really give recommendations based on what I'm seeing in the chart. Um, so a lot of that I feel like I'd already been doing. So it's very seamless to, to transition into that role. For our um, listeners out there that may be looking for some advice on where to go with their career, what advice would you have for them? They were new medical students trying to figure out what they want to do. Gosh, um, I would say do what you find interesting um, because you're going to be doing it every day for the rest of your life. Um, and so if you don't find it interesting, and it's, uh, I would move on to something else. I feel like in medical school, everyone, like, everyone started out thinking like, oh, I want to be, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon or, um, or I want to be a surgeon. I want to do this. And I remember being in the operating rooms thinking I couldn't do this every day of my life. This would be terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, and so I, every decision I made was just based on like, what do I find the most interesting and something I feel like I could do every day? Yeah, I always tell people is not to look at the most glamorous thing that you get to do in each uh, specialty, to look at the thing that you see all the time and figure out that, hey, I can live with dealing with this every day. You know, if it's not fixing a broken hip or, or taking care of somebody that has heart failure or chest pain, then, you know, don't pick those specialties because that's mostly what you're going to see. It's not going to be on the most uh, exciting thing that you saw for that month you were on that rotation as a medical student. 
it's not leishmaniasis every day. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it might be delusional parasitosis many days. It might since, be delusional parasitosis. Oh since, I, since I can make sure that you get all of those cases, since I know you love them. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Quickly becoming the parasite specialist. <laughs> well, Any questions for us, Richard? Anything that... Uh, um, so one thing that I was wondering, so I don't know how much y'all have talked about Sarah's background. A little bit. A little bit. I'm interested. I've never really <laughs> talked to Sarah and figured out like what was the driving force of going from dental hygienist to IP? Yeah. Oh, I, I never think of them as like very, uh, very close together. And so I, I've always thought that was kind of interesting that you've uh, kind of have knowledge of both fields, which we're very yeah. lucky to have you working here because of that. So I was actually an assistant, not a hygienist. Okay. Um, so I, when I became an assistant, I loved chair side, but I also loved educating. So I was only a clinical assistant for a couple of years when I got my first educator position. And I was an adjunct professor just teaching a couple classes to these classes of new dental assistants. And um, eventually over the years, it was not very hard for me to top out at the pay scale of a dental assistant. Um, it's just not, not a profession where there's a whole lot of growth within it. And so I was always looking for like, what can I do more? What's my next step? Where can I go now? Um, so eventually I got an educator position as program chair of dental assisting at Iowa Western here in Council Bluffs. And even then I was like, I just want to do more. I want to keep doing more. And one of my friends called me and she's like, I'm getting my master's degree of public health. You should really do this program with me. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Well, during that time I was um, getting my master's degree, I met a really awesome IP, um, Peg Lubert, which I know Dr. Starlin knows Peg. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. She is, <laughs> she's so amazing. She came to speak at one of our continuing education courses that we held. And I was like, she has the coolest job ever. I want to do that. So um, I was able to finish my master's degree and, um, I was just really lucky enough that ICAP was advertising for an IP position and they took a chance, even though I don't have my RN, I'm not a registered nurse. They kind of were like, Hey, we, we've dabbled in dentistry a little bit. Let's have somebody that knows something about it. And so here I am. I'm really, really grateful that I kept. Well, I think we're grateful. That <laughs> That's a great question, Richard. Yeah, we're trying to, uh, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do here is, is just show people's paths to what they're doing in various ways that they can work in either infectious disease or infection prevention or even public health and, and make a difference behind the scenes that uh, maybe isn't overly noticed. Uh, you know, you were uh, very involved in the pandemic response here and people have probably maybe seen your name, maybe in some articles or something that's come out, but otherwise most of your day-to-day -day work is, you know, if you see somebody in the hospital because they need an infectious disease console, but everything else that you do, nobody really knows what it is. Although 
you know, I think we make a huge difference every day in the care for people uh, because of all the protocols and things that we that we write and, and make sure are followed and, and everything we do to make sure that care is given safely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. We, we are the we're the heroes of the shadows, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's one thing that I really like about infection control and microbial stewardship is we're not only taking care of the patients right in front of us, we're taking care of all the patients in the hospital. Um, And I think to an extension, ICAP allows us to not only take care of all the patients in the hospital, but start taking care of everyone in the state. Um, Yeah. And with the, our dental efforts right now, that's, it's really a profession that hasn't had a lot of infection control support up to this point. Dentistry is really the wild west of infection control. It's so true. And on one of our recent uh, podcasts, we came across something that I was talking to Sarah about. And I was thinking, you know, no one else in this state is looking at dental infection control measures. And so if we were to change regulations to try to make dental infection control measures match standard of care, the only people that would be involved in that would be us. And so I feel like it's our duty to do that because no one else is going to do that. Yeah, it's a good niche. Uh, you, know, you can be famous outside of delusional parasitosis. You'll have <laughs> dental infection prevention. So two, two, there's career goals for you right there. And if we want to go, uh, you know, changing some of those infection control protocols across the state, then you can start reading legislature because we'll have oh, to work perfect. with all of those. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it all circles back right yeah. <laughs> well we appreciate you joining us richard oh, anything I'll... else that we haven't touched on no i think we talked about a lot awesome well thanks so much for spending an hour with us we appreciate yeah it. no it was, it was uh, great being here appreciate the invite awesome and for our listeners out there make sure to join us for the next episode of dirty drinks and We will see you later. Take care, everyone. Thanks for joining. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.